0: Hey, everybody. Garnet here. I know it's been a while since there's been a new episode of Access in your podcast feed. I promise that's because I am hard at work at some really important new episodes. But in the meantime, I wanted to share the recording of a recent live event in case you weren't able to make it in person. In the event, we had an incredible group of panelists, and we talked all about crisis pregnancy centers. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, then you know a bit about CPCs. But in this event, we dug in even deeper. And I think this information is more important now, even than it was during the event. With this week's news that the Supreme Court is in fact poised to overturn Roe v. Wade and a new six-week abortion ban in effect in Oklahoma, we know that a lot of abortion clinics are about to close. And when abortion clinics close... Crisis Pregnancy centers move in so it's more important than ever before to understand how CPCs operate and to be able to recognize them if you're feeling a little lost right now the incredible activist Allison Turcos friend of the pod made a really comprehensive document with lots of ideas about how you can show up for abortion access I'm gonna link that in the notes of today's episode and without further ado here is our event Hi, everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming this evening. My name is Garnet Henderson. I am an independent journalist and the host and producer of Access, a podcast about abortion.
1: And my name is Lisa Battispor, and I am the founder and president of Reproductive Transparency Now. And we are a Chicago based nonprofit that focuses on raising public awareness of um, crisis pregnancy centers through not only events like this, but also through community organizing and peaceful demonstrations. So we're here tonight to take an in-depth look at crisis pregnancy centers or CPCs. CPCs are also known as pregnancy care centers, pregnancy resource centers, or my favorite term, fake clinic. CPCs, are anti-abortion organizations, usually not for profits, that aim to intercept pregnant people who are seeking abortion care. They are able to create barriers to abortion access through well-documented, but far too often underestimated deceptive tactics. Although they usually present as small faith-based organizations, CPCs are part of a large and very sophisticated network that is coordinated by umbrella organizations such as Heartbeat International, CareNet, and Birthright International. Their large scale lends them a significant amount of power and influence, the dangers of which uh, we're gonna dive into much more deeply tonight.
0: Today, April 7th, is the day that the Senate confirmed our first ever Black woman Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, It is also World Health Day, and next week is Sexually Transmitted Disease Awareness Week. And it was those two things that really inspired the timing of this event, because in addition to spreading misinformation about abortion, crisis pregnancy centers are increasingly offering limited medical services, including testing for sexually transmitted infections. And the CDC, which organizes STD Awareness Week, actually includes some crisis pregnancy centers in its directory of STI testing service centers. So, when Lisa and I heard that from Dr. Andrea Swartzendruber, one of our panelists this evening, we knew it was something that we wanted to bring more attention to. So, you'll be hearing much more about that later in the evening. But first, we wanted to give uh, you an idea of the personal impact that crisis pregnancy centers have on pregnant people. So we're beginning the evening with a personal story. Uh, I'm very excited to have with us tonight, Maliha Aziz, an abortion story with We Testify. Maliha is a past guest on my podcast, Access she is also the community organizer at the Texas Equal Access Fund or T fund an abortion fund in Texas she's testified before Congress in opposition to Texas abortion bans and she is a passionate reproductive justice advocate welcome Laliha thank you so much for joining us tonight
2: thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful introduction
0: thank you well, Tell us a little bit about your experience visiting a crisis pregnancy center.
2: So this cause and raising awareness about crisis pregnancy centers is very near and dear to my heart. I have had two abortions, and I always tell people when I share my story that the most traumatic part of my entire abortion process was my visit with the crisis pregnancy center. Um, and I would do anything if I could spare someone what I experienced and you know, if I could inform someone, educate someone on what they actually are so I could save them that horror of walking into a CPC thinking they're going to get some help, um, you know, especially for people wanting abortions, walking into CPCs. So I moved to America when I was 19, 19, I was 19 years old. And I found myself in an um, unplanned, unwanted pregnancy at 20 years old. You know, things happen. I was on birth control. I was unlucky. You know, even though it's pretty effective, it just didn't work for me. Um, And I got pregnant. I was navigating an entirely new legal system, a new country, a new culture, a new medical system that to me seems like a complete mess, still does 10 years later, almost 10 years later. Um, And I found myself pregnant. Now, where I come from, abortion, mean, it's um, its not looked at like it is in the U.S. So in the U.S., it's this hot button topic, controversial with all of these extremes, right? Where I come from, it may not be talked about as much because everything seems to just, you know, be slid under the rug. But it doesn't invoke the same reaction from other people. So if I was still back home, which for me is Pakistan, um, I would have been able to have an abortion. Uh, without all the barriers and hassle that I had to go through in the U.S. But when I came here as a 20-year-old, I was definitely not prepared and overwhelmed by trying to navigate the process. And the one thing is back then, you know, I was new. I didn't work for T-Fund. I wasn't an advocate, and I had absolutely nothing to do with reproductive justice other than the fact that I was pregnant and I needed an abortion. I was also a broke college student. All my money went to, you know, I, I had help. I can't deny that I had help. I had help when it came to college. and But I also worked a job that paid $9 an hour. And all of my extra money went to food and rent and groceries and basically the necessities. So I didn't have a whole lot left over to pay for something that I didn't realize was going to be so expensive. I, um, I was initially in denial about my pregnancy. I think I may have tested seven times or nine times, you know, just because I didn't believe it. I was like, I'm in birth control. This can't be possible. But my partner at the time told me, look, my mom's had seven kids. I was old enough to remember her pregnancy and you're acting just like she did when she was pregnant. You're sleeping a lot. I think something's up Just take a test. I caved, I gave in, I took the test and I was pregnant. So for me, I had, I'd say at least like, three to five days of denial and processing before I could compose myself and actually do something about it. So I had to like cry it out. I had to think about it. I had to process that I am indeed pregnant and this isn't just gonna go away. I have to do something about it. I um, reached out to one of my cousins who was in medical school at the time thinking she may have some more information than I do um, because I'm very new. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to begin. I told my cousin, I don't know how pregnant I am because I, you know, was on birth control, and I was sort of skipping my period with it. So the way you track a pregnancy is, you know, they track it with your last menstrual period. So I called, I had insurance through my dad, and I called my OB's office, the gynecologist OB, and I told them, I think I'm pregnant, but I don't know how far along, and I want to come and get an ultrasound. And they told me, you'd need to sort of like guesstimate your last menstrual period, and I, it was so hard because I had no idea. So I just gave them a random date, which put me way under the eight week mark where they typically see you even for a wanted pregnancy, right? So I think whatever date I gave them put me at about five to six weeks. So they told me I had to wait and then make an appointment when I was eight weeks on a completely false date. So that wasn't going to work, right? Um, so I told my cousin, I need to get an ultrasound. First thing I need to do is get an ultrasound. So I would, so I know what how pregnant I am. Oh, how far along. Uh, and I told her, if I have to do it without insurance, it can't be expensive. Because anything without health insurance, even with health insurance is ridiculously expensive. But without health insurance, for me, out of reach, completely unaffordable. Um, so I told her I need to find a place that doesn't cost a lot. She did a quick search on Google, and she found a list of Clinics that offered to do free to low cost ultrasounds. Again, me not knowing, her not knowing, she definitely would not have sent me that list if she knew what those places were. But a lot of those places were actually crisis pregnancy centers. So I picked the one that I found was closest to me that offered to do a free ultrasound. I believe for me it was called White Rose Women's Clinic. I think that's what the one, that's the one I ended up going to with my partner. And our first step was, we're going to get an ultrasound, we're going to see what the situation is, and then we'll plan from there. And I was completely, um, you know, I was ready to have an abortion, I knew what my decision was, I talked to my partner at the time about it, and we both were on the same page. Now it was just, let's figure out how pregnant I am, and then take care of whatever needs to be done after. Now, the one little twist for me was, uh, surgical abortion was out of the question for me. I was only willing to have a medication abortion. Now, it's not because a surgical abortion is unsafe by any means. It's not. It's extremely safe. I am also a survivor of sexual violence. Um, I was sexually assaulted twice before, and that caused some pelvic floor dysfunction um, and vaginismus, which basically makes it very painful and difficult for me to tolerate any kind of pelvic exam, um, transvaginal ultrasound, or any kind of penetration at all. The thing about surgical abortion is the whole speculum, it's slightly more invasive. I just, that caused me so much anxiety and fear. I just felt like I wouldn't be able to get through it. So it's not so much the pain as it is the whole idea of something or some kind of penetration. With medication abortion, it definitely hurts a bit more, but it's sort of, you take the pills and your body does its thing. And that was what appealed to me more. Now the downside to that is there's a time limit, you know. You can't use you can't have a medication abortion when you're like 16 or 17 weeks or so on. There's like a smaller window. And that is when I panicked because I needed to know how far along I was to know if I was still within that window to get the kind of medication abortion that I wanted. Well, we end up at the CPC and there are these two ladies dressed in white lab coats, and slightly older. Um, and the first thing they did was ask me to pee in a cup so they could confirm that I was pregnant. And I was there with my partner. What was weird to me, and again, I was new in the US. So I didn't know this was normal or not, because I didn't have too many experiences with the medical system prior. But I walked in, and there was biblical imagery all over the place. I have no problem with religion, although I'm not Christian, I'm Muslim. um, But in a medical setting, it seemed weird. And again, as I said, I hadn't been to too many hospitals or doctors before that. So just Like it gave me a strange vibe. Um, And that was my first flag. I was just like, why is this all over this place? Um, Anyway, so that I already had this, you know, I had this um, feeling in the back of my head that this place may not be what I thought it was because I went in trying to get an ultrasound and going from there. Um, The after they confirmed my pregnancy, using my urine sample. They told my partner and I that we have to sit in a room and we have to watch a 30 minute video. It was okay, whatever, you know, fine, sure. Um, So my partner and I sat in the room, they closed the door. They didn't lock us in, but they closed the door and they told us we had to watch the whole video. That is when the shock and horror began. I could not believe what they were forcing people to sit through and watch. It was a 30 minute propaganda video about abortion, very obvious propaganda. what the video showed was a man who was dressed in a lab coat. So I think they're trying to give up like, oh, this person's a doctor. And what he was doing was he was taking what looked like a an actual child, you know, not a, like an actual child, and they showed him holding surgical instruments and basically like pull apart parts of what they tried to, you know, what this child was. It was really weird because they were basically equating some weird horror movie scene to abortion. That's basically how I can describe it. And I had to watch that for 30 minutes. And I was grossed out and disturbed and just at the absurdity and how ridiculous it was that they were telling people that this is abortion. Thankfully, I knew better. And in that moment, I knew exactly what this rest of what the rest of my experience with the CPC was going to be like. So my partner and I tried to laugh and talk to each other about other things, because neither one of us had any shame or guilt about me wanting to have an abortion, you know, Jess, it wasn't a big deal. So we talked through it and then they came back. And then I had some anxiety because you can have two different kinds of ultrasounds. You can have a transvaginal ultrasound and you can have an abdominal ultrasound. Now my main anxiety was what were they going to do? Which one of it was, it, was it going to be? So I tried to tell the sonographer, um, you know, I was scared and I wanted to know, and she was confused. And then I sort of told her I'm a survivor. I have this condition Then I realized they're not trauma-informed at all, at all. They have no training whatsoever because here's what she said to me. Well, honey, you're pregnant now, so you should learn to deal with pain. And this was after I told her I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And I also come from like a trauma-informed background. I've been a sexual assault advocate in the past, in my past job. So I was, I was angry. I was like, I can take this. I'm glad it's me and not somebody else. I'm glad they said it to me. I can handle it. But, it, you know, you don't say that to anybody, let alone a survivor. And I realized, you know, in, in the moment, I didn't realize that they weren't also medical professionals or didn't have any medical training. You know, most of them don't because they can under the guise of, oh, we're social workers. So we don't actually or some, you know, we, we're not we're, we don't need to have any kind of medical training to do what we're doing. But again, I didn't know that till many years later till I started working for T-Fund. Otherwise, I would have just completely lost it. Um, so. After she said that to me thankfully it was still an abdominal ultrasound uh, they did the ultrasound and they put me I think they put me in 9.5 weeks and at that time something like the cutoff was I think 10 weeks 10 10.5 to 11 weeks or something so I didn't have a lot of time I also played along with them because at that time my partner and I totally recognized what they were about and I did not mention you know I didn't actually mention that I was trying to have an abortion I we tried to convince them that we're not and we're just trying to get this ultrasound and get out of here you know I was like we'll play along do this as fast as we can and just get the hell out of there but they started telling me a lot of things about abortion a lot of lies some of them included i would get breast cancer if i was to have an abortion um i would uh, never be able to have children if i have an abortion i have been pregnant 3 times i have one child that's so clearly not true and i know exception norm but the fact is that's not true. That's not true. It's been debunked several times over. So uh, they just fed a lot of lies. Uh, and it was ridiculous, but I'm glad that I knew better. But in the conversation of abortion, what else came up was, uh, and I don't remember how, because it was a long time ago, but at some point it came up where one of the ladies told me that the medication abortion, the pill, one of the pills, was so dangerous in the state of Texas. I mean, so it was so dangerous that the state of Texas had actually banned it. That is when I panicked. Like I was about to lose it, but thankfully it was close to the end and I was about to get out, but I totally panicked. I wish I had known better. I wish I had fact checked because turns out that was a lie as well. Texas had never actually banned medication abortion, but because that's what I thought, I just, you know, I was vulnerable, emotional, scared. And I, I felt like I was running out of time. So instead of fact checking them and thinking about everything they said and doing my own research, I was convinced I can't have a medication abortion in Texas. I have to go out of state. So this is where things get harder. I reached out to a family member because, again, I don't have money or I didn't have money to travel out of the state. And thankfully, you know, I didn't know about abortion funds at the time. I was too new. Um, But one of my family members funded my abortion. I am so grateful and so thankful to them that they did. Um, and my family member paid for my plane ticket, my partner's plane ticket. I was also extremely sick in my pregnancy because I have this condition called hyperemesis and it's just constant vomiting, dehydration. And it hit me like five weeks into my pregnancy. So I would not have made that trip. I wouldn't have survived that trip without some help anyway. Um, so I went to Colorado Springs. I called Louisiana. I called Oklahoma. Um, and then Colorado Springs. I think they were the easiest to communicate with. And um, they had an appointment where I could get in sooner rather than later. So that's what made that decision for me, that Colorado Springs is where I'm going to go. I went there. Um, I had a medication abortion. My provider was awesome. You know, they worked with me. Um, I told them about my sexual trauma. And I still had to go through a mandatory ultrasound because of state blah, 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 not because it's required or medically necessary, because the legislators force you to go through that trauma because they don't give a shit. Um, So I still had to go through that. But whoever did it for me was very kind and patient and let me take my time, which is the only way I was able to get through, get through that awful ordeal. My provider um, was basically saying a ton of crap about Texas politicians and made me laugh. And he told me you shouldn't have had to come all the way here. I hate Texas. I hate Texas politics, but I'm going to take care of you. And he was just the sweetest. He was so, so nice to me. And he gave me, you know, you take, um, I believe you take that first pill. And then he sent me home with the second set of pills you put behind your cheeks and, and wrote me a prescription for pain meds that I could take in Texas. Um, I What is important to note is the fact that abortion was never illegal in Texas or medication abortion. I didn't actually have to spend all this money that I didn't have or travel, but my total travel cost and my abortion and everything was nearly $2,000 money. I did not have money someone else paid for me. And although they're not asking for it back, you know, it's always been on my head that I borrowed, not borrowed. I took $2,000 from a family member and I'm thankfully in the position to return it now. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. And a lot of people don't have someone that they can take that money from. My abortion itself, I believe was $680 and I was 9.5 weeks. And then my blood type is negative. So I had to get the Rogam shot to protect future pregnancies or whatever. And when you, $100 may not seem like a lot to some, but when you're living paycheck to paycheck or when you don't even have that much, It is a lot of money, especially to a college student or single mother, you know, there's so many people who spend money they don't have because our healthcare system sucks and our politicians suck. So it's just, I think it's worth noting that even though it may seem like a small amount to some, it's a whole lot of money for people that don't have money. And at me at at the time, that was me. Um, But I was able to have my medication abortion thanks to the help of a family member all the way in Colorado Springs. Um, and I ended up there because of the lies and the traumatic experience I had at the crisis pregnancy center. And that really is my story. And the only last thing I want to mention is, um, which makes me very emotional. The year I had my abortion at Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs, I believe it was the year after that, that the same Planned Parenthood was actually attacked. So
0: thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Malija, um, Yeah. And it's an important point you make uh, because violence is on the rise at abortion clinics. It's certainly been on my mind lately that shooting in Colorado Springs, given some of the very inflammatory rhetoric we're hearing about abortion and abortion providers at the moment. Um, So, you know, now you know so much about CPCS. You're a reproductive justice organizer. You help people get the abortions that they need. Um, and it sounds like the CPC you went to, there were lots of signs that were meant to show that it was a medical facility, uh, white coats, um, the film was somebody who appeared to be a doctor, but did anyone, do you remember anyone who worked there actually explaining their qualifications to you? No one. Right.
2: There was the sonographer wearing scrubs. So, you know, when you walk into a facility like that, you automatically assume these people must be medical professionals because it's the only ethical thing to do. So I didn't question till all those shady things happened. But if you're walking into something that calls itself a clinic or resource center, I, I feel like those people should be qualified to give you that care. And the fact that they're not is outrageous and unacceptable.
0: Mm-hmm. Particularly because CPCs often really work to make themselves look just like abortion clinics that might be nearby. So they really do give off that clinic appearance. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it sounds like you were very confident in your decision. You knew you wanted to have an abortion. And it sounds like, even though they said a lot of really stigmatizing things to you at the CPC, They didn't really succeed in making you feel ashamed about your decision to have an abortion. But go ahead.
2: The only thing they did was make me very determined and motivated to try and take them down. And that is literally one of my main goals, a T-fund because of the Crisis Pregnancy Center campaign that we're launching, which is literally focused on spreading awareness about CPCs and trying to eventually defund them.
0: Yes. And we dropped that link in the chat. So if anybody is interested in working with Malija on that, please fill out that form. Um, I'm also curious, you know, they were really trying to convince you to continue with the pregnancy. So do you remember if they offered you any concrete resources like medical referrals, food assistance, parenting support, the things you actually would have needed if you had wanted to parent?
2: So the one thing that they kept talking about because they knew my financial situation, they were asking a lot of personal questions and they wanted to collect a lot of information. I mm-hmm. wish I had given them the wrong phone number because they called me for about six months after, literally. Wow. I eventually blocked them, should have done it sooner, but they just kept calling me. They offered to help me sign up for WIC. I believe it's some kind of government assistance mm-hmm. or um, and I know not that CPC, but I know some of them offer parenting classes or you know, diapers and and baby wipes to people who are parents, which is not a bad thing. But again, my goal is you shouldn't have to go through trauma to get those resources and supplies. Um, And part of my campaign would be to try and offer that to parents without having, you know, with and sparing them the trauma of having to go to a CPC.
0: Absolutely. And we have an audience question, which is, is that T fund campaign only for people in Texas? Or is it open to people who live elsewhere?
2: That's a good question. Um, I haven't thought about that, but I don't see why not. If you're interested, you can sign on and then I can discuss with my coworkers and see how we feel about that. But I mean, any help to take a CPC down, I'll take.
0: (laughs) Great. Um, so, you know, it's clear that your abortion experience would have been very different if you hadn't visited a CPC for one thing, you would have gotten an abortion sooner. Um, and you also would have been able to avoid a lot of trauma, as you mentioned. Um, and so, you know, you, you said one of the first things you said tonight is that the most traumatic or the only traumatic part of your experience was that visit to a CPC. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, how, how much has that stuck with you? Because I know that now you are a parent. You did have a sub- subsequent pregnancy that you did choose to carry to term and become a mother. And was that experience at the CPC and that trauma that you experienced still on your mind when you were going through that?
2: So I did, you know, choose to have a child and I have a daughter that's two now and my pregnancy was not easy. It was very hard. And every day I just wanted it to end, but I'm glad I stuck through. I love my baby, my daughter more than anything in the world. Um, but that, Trauma did stick. I mean, think about it. My entire campaign is based on my trauma and what CPCs have done to me and other people like me. Um, But I had a second abortion, you know, and I'll I'll share some minimal details for sake of time. Um, But my second abortion was amazing. I had an abortion doula. It was easy. My husband was here. It was all over pretty soon. It was easier to access. Although I did have, um, you know, more advantage and I guess, privileged being me and having more money and work and being an advocate and knowing the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but my second abortion is the experience I want for everyone who wants to have an abortion. Easy, peaceful. My daughter was actually in the same room while I was having it because it was a medication abortion. She's playing with her toys. My husband was watching her in and out. And my doula was giving me all the support that I need. Um, and that is what I want for everyone who finds themselves in that situation and is looking to have an abortion. It was not traumatic. It was not difficult. It hurt, but it wasn't anything I couldn't deal with. You know, most medical procedures come with some pain.
0: Mm-hmm. And one thing that stands out to me as well about your story is that at the CPC, they told you medication abortion was illegal in Texas, which of course was not true. But since then, Texas lawmakers sure have been working really hard to limit access to abortion in general and to medication abortion specifically. Um, So how does that make you feel as someone who had a really strong preference for medication abortion?
2: It it hurts. It makes me angry. And that's the thing. Um, Just like they don't care about people who need abortions, they also don't care about survivors right? And you shouldn't have to go through life altering trauma to be worth or, you know, to be worth something or for to have ownership of your body and bodily autonomy, right? You shouldn't have to be raped, you shouldn't have to be sexually assaulted. Or, and, and I feel like when people talk about abortion, they talk about all these extreme situations. And of course, you know, there's trauma, and I've been through it. But anybody who wants an abortion, it's if you're being forced to carry a pregnancy, you don't want to term, that's trauma. That just right there, that is a lot of trauma. So I think sometimes it bothers me when people just talk about those extreme situations, because boring people have abortions, people who have mm-hmm. normal lives and literally boring people have abortions. And that's valid, because that is their choice. And that is their body. So it just makes me really angry that we have to talk about it being acceptable only in these extreme circumstances. No, it has to be acceptable always. And the fact that they're making it harder when they are excluding people who've gone through severe trauma, and then they're further traumatizing people who, you know, by forcing them to remain pregnant and having to think about all these obstacles and going out of state. I've gone out of state for an abortion. It is not easy. And the reality is a lot of people who, a lot of people will be forced to remain pregnant. And to me, that is horrifying and unacceptable.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point. Thank you so much for being with us this evening Maliha. We really appreciate you being so vulnerable and open and sharing your story with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. So, next we're going to learn a lot more about how CPCs operate from the people who created the most comprehensive national directory of crisis pregnancy centers out there, the CPC map. And I think you're going to recognize a lot of elements from Maliha's story Reflected in some of the data that they're going to share with us. So I'm really pleased to introduce Dr. Andrea Swartzendruber and Dr. Danielle Lambert, who have collaborated on many, many research studies of CPCs. Dr. Swartzendruber is an associate professor in the epidemiology and biostatistics department in the College of Public Health at the University of Georgia. Her areas of expertise include sexual and reproductive health. Adolescent Health and Women's Health Policy, and she is a co founder of the CPC MAP. And Dr. Lambert is an assistant professor in the Epidemiology and Biostatistics Department at the UGA College of Public Health. Her research focuses on linking marginalized and underserved communities, specifically adolescents and emerging adults, to evidence based sexual and reproductive health care, and she is also a co-founder of CPC MAP. So welcome, Andrea and Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: We're um, pleased to be here today. So I'm primarily going to be um, presenting uh, findings today, although um, what what I will be presenting and and our research and findings have been a collaboration with um, Danielle and, and I. Um, so, CPCs um, get a lot of government funding and support. This map of the United States: um, those shaded states, shaded in dark blue, are states that directly fund crisis pregnancy centers through a um, through a dedicated grant program. There are about sixteen states in the United States that uh, directly fund CPCs in in that way. This next map shows. Um, states that fund or raise revenue for crisis pregnancy centers through the sale of um, Choose Life license plates. So those are in the dark blue on this map raise revenue for the centers through those sales. We've probably seen a lot of news um, more and more recently um, that um, uh, there is increased funding from the government for uh, the centers. Over time, and um, even in the past year, we've seen a number of states increase their funding for crisis pregnancy centers. The center has received significant funding despite recommendations from major health organizations, such as the American Public Health Association, way back in 2011. They issued a physician statement urging governments to only support programs that provide accurate, unbiased information. More recently, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine and the um, North American um, Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology issued a joint position statement on crisis pregnancy centers, too. Um, The first position was that CPCs pose risk by failing to adhere to medical and ethical practice standards. And again, the government should only support health programs that provide accurate, comprehensive information. So what are the risks? CPCs uh, risk causing harm by prioritizing their own goals over medical and ethical practice standards and prioritize their own goals over client needs. They often provide inaccurate and misleading health information. Many provide unproven services such as um, abortion reversal or abortion recovery. They portray often portray their services in misleading ways and often fail to um, promote informed consent. The Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention along with the Office of Population Affairs um, defined a quality um, family planning services. So this is meant to be a core set of uh, services in order to reduce missed opportunities um, and um, and to provide comprehensive care. So the comprehensive set of services, the kind of the minimum package for family planning uh, providers, which actually the uh, CPCs would be subject to, include pregnancy testing, unbiased pregnancy option counseling and referrals as requested by the client, comprehensive contraceptive counseling, provision of at least at least one contraceptive method, STI testing, treatment, condom use, um, and uh, providing condoms to make sure that they're easily acceptable, accessible. However, crisis pregnancy centers don't offer the majority of these services, as I'll talk about um, coming up. Uh, we had questions about to what extent the centers were providing STI testing and treatment, and I'll show you some of those results. Our study showed that CPCs frequently provide high levels of uh, misinformation. One of our studies was conducted here in Georgia where we looked at the information and quality of information on uh, websites of crisis pregnancies centers in Georgia. And we found that the vast majority, 78%, who had any content about condoms on their website also had statements that... Um, that undermine the efficacy of of condoms. For example, saying that condoms aren't as effective as most people think in preventing the spread of STDs, or that condoms can only reduce the chance of infection with STDs like chlamydia and gonorrhea. And we know that condoms are indeed effective against viruses and even the smallest of um, microbes. Despite CPC's opposition, to condom use, um, the CDC actually refers people who are looking for HIV and STD services and testing to crisis pregnancy centers. So on this slide are a number of crisis pregnancy centers. Take a look here. And which of these would you say um, is not listed on the CDC's STD referral site? and all but one of these uh, crisis pregnancy centers is on the uh, CDC's referral site. This is their HIV testing locator, saying crisis pregnancy centers, and all but two of these centers are uh, included on um, CDC's referral directories. As many of you all probably already know that the CPCs can be really hard to identify, right? So if you're looking for services, you come across a website like this, would you know that it's a crisis pregnancy center or not, right? They offer STI testing and treatment. They say they offer pre-abortion assessment. That's a, a service that we're seeing more and more advertised on crisis pregnancy center websites, Here's another site they offer here post abortion exams even sports physicals as well as std testing so because crisis pregnancy centers can be difficult to identify we created cpc map with two different goals the first goal to help people who are looking for health services know which centers are crisis pregnancy centers is this a place that has what i'm looking Or or not. And then our second goal, of course, was to facilitate more academic research related to um, the centers. This is a shot of our um, home screen. You can search by state and zip and um, try to find all the crisis pregnancy centers that are near you. This map shows all of the locations of crisis pregnancy centers that were operating when we first released our map in 2018. Crisis pregnancy centers are um, located in every single state. We have just released an updated version of our data. It's now up to date through the end of uh, 2021. So the next uh, findings I'll show come from this updated, our updated data set. In total, in the United States, there are about 2,500 crisis pregnancy centers, which actually rivals um, the number of uh, local health departments. Three out of four crisis pregnancy centers offer limited medical services, which we defined as um, at least providing a um, limited ultrasound. And this has gone up. So when we first released our map in 2018, 66% of CPCs offered ultrasounds. It's now 77%, which is a statistically significant increase. The South um, has the greatest percentage of crisis pregnancy centers at 39%. There are twice as many uh, crisis pregnancy centers in the South as there are in the West and uh, almost three times as many crisis pregnancy centers in the South as compared to the Northeast. So next I'll tell you a little bit about what we found when we looked at to what extent the centers are offering HIV and STI services. This is from a paper that was published uh, in October uh, last year. So we, we first used our site, uh, CPC map to identify all of crisis pregnancy centers in the United States. We looked at all of their websites, and um, we successfully reached 99% of the centers by uh, with the telephone call. The data were collected between 2018 and 19. We had female research assistants who called each crisis pregnancy center using a standard script. And then after the call, they completed a survey. We didn't, the script did not ask or request a referral if the center didn't offer, say, STD testing or any other service. But when we were provided a referral, we noted it. Um, So overall, we found at this time point that there were um, about one in five, 22% of crisis pregnancy centers offer testing for at least one um, sexually transmitted infection. This map shows the locations of CPCs that did and did not offer STI testing. Those in the dark blue are the locations of the centers that uh, offered STI testing. This map shows These are all the centers, all the crisis pregnancy centers that did not offer STI testing. The difference here is um, uh, we're showing those that did or did not provide a referral for testing. So none of these centers provided STI testing. Um, Those in blue provided a referral for testing and those in green did not provide a referral for testing. So 58% of the crisis pregnancy centers um, that did not offer STI testing did not also offer a referral. We found overall that 8% of crisis pregnancy centers offered HIV testing. This map shows the locations of the crisis pregnancy centers that did and did not offer HIV testing. Those in blue are the locations of the centers that did indeed offer HIV testing. Um, And then those in the light blue, many, many more, um, did not offer HIV testing. This map shows only the crisis pregnancy centers that did not offer HIV testing. Those uh, blue dots are the centers that offered a referral for HIV testing. And then the uh, many more green dots are the ones that did not provide a referral for um, HIV testing. 92% of um, CPCs that did not offer HIV testing also did not provide a referral. This map shows um, sites that offered both HIV testing and STI testing. Those are in the light blue. And those in the dark blue offered STI testing, but not HIV testing. right? And our national guidelines say if somebody's had unprotected pets, uh, sex or um, is worried that they're pregnant, uh, they should be tested for both HIV and STI testing. Um, and STIs. Nationally, we found that 28% of CPCs that offered at least testing for at least one STI did not offer treatment services. Up to 41% of um, CPCs in the South that offered testing did not offer treatment. Here we are looking at all of the locations of centers that did not offer treatment. Um, In the blue are those that offered a referral. And um, those in green are the centers that did not offer treatment and did not provide a referral, which was 92% of the centers. And here we have um, all the centers that provided um, STD testing. In the light blue are the CPCs that um, appear to have a testing, excuse me, a a treatment strategy. Either they had treatment available for at least one STI on-site or provided a referral. The dark blue circles are those that appear to have no treatment strategy. They did not provide, they provided testing, but they did not provide treatment and they did not provide a referral. So in public health, we usually um, try to provide services uh, where they are most needed. So we we did an analysis to see are CPCs located that offer testing, are they located in places where STI rates are highest, right? Um, And we found no association between the number of centers that offered chlamydia testing per state and uh, chlamydia rates. We also didn't find any association um, with those that provide locations of centers that provided HIV testing and HIV uh, rates. So to do better, it's our position that public health departments, um, national public health agencies, such as the CDC... Should review ways in which they are supporting crisis pregnancy centers, including through referrals and uh, referral directories, and exclusively support testing sites that are known to provide evidence based care and information. Um, Clinicians, public health professionals, and um, health consumers should make themselves aware about crisis pregnancy centers, know which centers are operating in your local area and um, help people understand the limitation of crisis pregnancy center services. Health and medicine professionals should also be helping to raise awareness about the risks of crisis pregnancy centers, the limitations of their services, and help people identify safe quality sources of HIV and STI care and information. And uh, here's our contact information one more time.
4: Thank you. And just add too, based on some comments we got in the questions, some of the maps that you saw included in that presentation are available to download on our website and publicly available. So if you're interested in um, referencing those or using any of those maps for education, um, please feel free to visit the site and download and we will be updating the website in the future too with additional resources as well. I think we have a... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Lisa.
1: (laughs) So I think we have time for um, one question. Was there any that came up uh, in the Q&A?
4: Sure, we had two that were kind of related um, that might be good ones to speak to. So a couple of questions about what can public health professionals do or the field do um, to advocate against ways in which CPCs are legitimized as medical centers or facilities um, and what can people do um, seeing resources, seeing CPCs listed as resources on government sites? Um, what steps can be taken?
3: Yeah, I think there are lots of ways uh, for public health folks to be advocates, right? And part of that is helping to raise awareness about what CPCs are and the risks and the um, Know helping people to understand, like, where are the CPCs in their local areas? Right? Um, there are a lot of funding that is going to crisis pregnancy centers. Um, there are new bills coming up all the time. We've had some in Georgia here as well. So, to the extent that folks are uh, writing their legislators or being in contact with their legislators or or um or testifying when those uh bills come up, um, I mean. I personally would love to see the Crisis Pregnancy Centers not appear on um, our CDC's website. Um, I I would love to see action in that way, Um, organized action to, um, to request that the CDC not make referrals to Crisis Pregnancy Centers when they know that they oppose condom use. Right? So how could, how could they be following national guidelines um, to promote, to, um, to make condoms easily available? Um, the sexual abstinence until only as the main message and not to use condoms um, risks individual health. It risks public health. Um, it could lead to further transmission at a time when STI rates are as high as they've ever been.
4: I might just add to um, t- just being aware whether you work in healthcare or are an advocate or otherwise. Um, some of our studies have found um, that family planning clinics are referring to CPCs for services they don't provide. Um, so making sure that um Patients and individuals in need of care are getting evidence-based referrals so that they can easily and accessibly uh, reach and are able to access the resources that they need. Um, And I just want to answer one of the other questions we got was about the distance between CPCs and abortion clinics and whether there'll be some um, mapping related to that. And we are actually actively working on an analysis and a map to that effect. And we hope um, to make that available through publication and through our website and in, in the near future as well.
1: Thank you so much, um, Dr. And, and Dr. Lambert. Um, this information is invaluable and it will serve as the foundation of that action that you've just described. So, uh, for our audience, so you know, this webinar is not the end. There are organizations all over this country who are taking action to call CPCs out and to do something about it. And so, please do follow CPC Map, follow T Fund, we testify, um, get on our email lists uh, because there's going to be action and there is something you can do. And so, the conversation is not over yet. Thank you so much um, for being here today and for sharing this information. Um, there were several uh, really thoughtful questions in the Q&A that we didn't get to hear, but we will address those after the event. So we'll loop back with all of our speakers and make sure that we've addressed the audience questions appropriately. Um, so thank you so much. And I hope everyone out there is learning as much as I am tonight. This is an amazing Uh, amazing program. And next we are going to keep things rolling and we're going to move into um, what does this all mean for our communities? Uh, What does it mean for, for people every day who are living their lives and are dealing with these places and these conflicting messages? And so I am so excited and so honored to be able to introduce our next two speakers Um, So first we have um, Amy Registe Esquire, um, who is a reproductive justice lawyer based in Northern Virginia and is the policy and advocacy program manager at Sister Love Inc. Amy's work centers on sexual health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice through state, local, and federal policy and advocacy work with a focus on maternal health, reproductive justice, LGBTQ plus liberation, and disability justice. And we also have Dezan Dixon Diallo, who is the founder and president of Sister Love Inc., the first women's HIV, sexual and reproductive justice organization in the southeastern United States. Daizan is a recognized visionary and advocate in the struggle for human rights, sexual and reproductive justice, and the fight against HIV with and on behalf of communities of women and girls living with HIV and those at risk for HIV and STIs. She's a proud member of In Our Own Voice, National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda Partnership, a co-chair for Act Now and AIDS National Coalition, a UNFPA Global Advisory Council member, and a founding member of Sister Song Reproductive Justice Collective. Thank you both for being here and I will let you take it from here.
5: Thank you so much, um, Lisa. Um, on I believe you're muted.
6: Yep. I thought I hit the mute button, but you know, I'm in that space. So <laughs> I'm here now. But thank you so much, Lisa, for that fabulous introduction. And hey Amy, how you doing? I'm good, Dayson. How are you? I'm good. I have to say it like that because we're in different cities. So we have to act like we're like from yeah. Norway. <laughs> I'm I'm really grateful for this conversation. I know that we have a list of questions and things that we want to get to. But I think first, and you've heard a bit about Sister Love, but I think it's important that we express to folks that Sister Love um, roots, uh, everything that we do is rooted in the reproductive justice framework, which of course has its grounding in the human rights framework, as well as using intersectionality as an approach to everything that we do. And so this issue is of immediate concern because it they too now have entered into an intersectional space that we weren't um, seeing in the early days. For example, when I used to work in an abortion clinic here in Atlanta, the Feminist Women's Health Center back in the 80s. And and so it's a deep concern to us. And we want to make sure that not only in this conversation, but in everyday conversation, people are able to talk about these facilities and the people that are in them and who they are who run them. And so I think that that's another piece is that they are not only very difficult to find or to at least identify and recognize, but who the people are who are working in them are also difficult to know about where they're coming from, what their backgrounds are, what they're doing. When most often, when you enter any space that's a legitimate provider of any kind of sexual and reproductive health services, the people who work there are pretty open about who they are, what they think, where their information is coming from. So I think that that um, is also a part of our concern. The other thing, because Lisa talked about... uh, this being a community approach. And there was a question in the Q&A that I think we can answer is that in addition to the location of these CPCs being near or nearer or in vicinity, near vicinity to abortion facilities where they can find them, they also on at the same time are also locating in communities that are low-income, have less development, have fewer resources, fewer opportunities, uh, even for those who uh, intend to uh, sustain their pregnancies and give birth. So the issue here is that one of the biggest impacts from the question on Black, brown, uh, femmes and girls is that they target us. So I, I, I think that that's really the biggest issue there is that they target us and then they exploit us because of the issues and the needs that we have and because they can use a broken health system to reach us. So that's, um, that's my intro into one of the conversations, Amy, which is why these facilities and what they do is so harmful, especially to communities of Black and brown uh, women, femmes, girls, and other people who are assigned female at birth. Yes, absolutely.
5: And thank you, Dazon. Um, Everything that you said kind of segues into um, this conversation about why they are so harmful. So crisis pregnancy centers promote themselves as non-biased medical clinics, which um, they kind of um, present themselves as they're going to offer you unbiased information and support. And That's not the case. Most of them are not medically licensed. Um, They tend to have untrained staff. Um, As was discussed earlier, they dress in scrubs or you know medical um, garb to convince people that they are a legitimate healthcare facility, Um, and they operate to discourage their client, the people that they see, um, from seeking out abortion by telling them false information. And as you said earlier, they tend to target people of color people of color, lower income communities, they tend to be in these locations knowing that these are the people who are most vulnerable. Um, And a lot of the false information that they give usually asserts a link between abortion and breast cancer or abortion and um, mental health issues. Know it's also common for these clinics to give pregnant folks false information about how far along they are um, in order to decrease the window of time that is um, available for them to access actual abortion services. And one of the issues that Sister Love is um, particularly interested in because we are an organization that you know advocates for HIV um, and people living with HIV is the fact that. These um, oftentimes these CPCs um, claim to provide STI testing and counseling, but a lot of them are ill-equipped to do so and just simply don't um, provide the the testing that they claim to offer.
6: Yep. I mean, <clears throat> when, when it's at the outset, uh, what upsets me the most is that they are legally, because of the Supreme mm-hmm. Court decision, um, the California case, they are legally sanctioned to lie and that's what people don't really understand because there's no, you know, signage that says these people lie but it's okay. Um <laughs> there are so that's one is that they are consistent liars, that they are atrocious liars because everything they say can be disproven. All you have to do is just question them. The other thing that just uh what Malia's story brought up for me is that in addition to the misinformation and the fear mongering that goes on is that they're actually re-traumatizing people because of their inability to be trauma-informed, their inability to even care about people's traumas because their intent is to traumatize people away from choosing abortion. And that in and of itself is not only anti-feminist, it's anti-woman and it's anti-mother, as far as I'm concerned. They're also um, costing people a lot more money. So when we talk about the economy of reproductive health, the economy of a a choice, um, around pregnancy, where it, uh, on the one hand looks like, um, the, the choice for pregnancy as long or continuing a pregnancy is as long as we provide you some resources at this moment, at this outset, you'll be fine without the construct, the concept of the lies, if I end up getting an abortion, still cost me money, a lot more resources, uh, and relationships in some instances. But also the fact that the abortions themselves are safer, especially for Black women in the United States, that the abortion services in this country are safer than carrying a pregnancy to full term. That kind of stuff, I think, is even more dangerous, and and why they're harmful, and people who are usually seeking these services in the point of needing not just a pregnancy test, but a place that's going to help affirm or at least confirm what their needs are, what their choices are. I like the way our scientists have placed it is that they put the needs of the CPC goals over the needs of the people. So they're not people centered. They're not human rights centered. They're not woman centered. um, And they're obviously not They have an alert allergy with the truth. And i just keep saying that they are liars. They are big, fat liars. And they also take advantage of the most vulnerable moments for people. So they're not just giving giving out fear, they're just like driving shame and driving guilt and driving stigma in ways that are quite damaging in the long term, especially if we're talking about younger adults, if we're talking about teenagers that are seeking these. I am deeply concerned about some of the folks that we come across as very young people who actually have been through some of the same traumas that Malia has, has um, expressed. The, the other thing that comes to me, Amy, that I um, think is important in terms of some of these issues, and we can talk about what's happening is that the funding that goes to these centers Mm -hmm. are often in, as the Andrea and uh, Danielle have showed us are in places where they have not expanded Medicaid, are in places where the uh, access to reproductive health services are shrinking, not expanding, and that they're also more than likely, other than Medicaid funding, they're not funding HIV prevention. They're not funding STI prevention in the South where for instance, most of all of those funds come directly from the federal government, not from the state governments. But the state governments are those that are directly funding CPCs, so they have to be. I think at one point, I don't even know what the amount is now. That we not only, for example, in the state of Georgia, do we have a license, a vanity license plate that you can buy that is anti-abortion, anti-choice. Um. But those funds also are used to go directly to the CPCs. So there's already a system that's set up. But let me talk about a piece that I think is even more alarming, especially since we're in a dangerous election season. And that is, and it's already been spoken to just a a little bit, but they are now big data mining centers. They're big data mining centers for the anti-abortion factions and by extension, the conservative electoral system, right? So they're not just, collect- that's why I'm, I would say to folks, if I was counseling someone in person, if you are uh, find yourself in one of these places, you didn't, might not have even known you were there, but if you find yourself in one of these places, just know that they're going to be lying to you. So I don't think you should feel any um, obligation to be honest with them. Not your name, not your address, not your phone number, not your birthday, nobody's information that's connected to you, because all of that information will be used not only against you, but any and everybody else through the policies that they're able to propagate with that that type of ability and capacity. That is a serious issue that I don't hear being taken up in in media spaces um, around the, uh, how this technology, the world of technology is creating more opportunities for them to violate people's privacy, violate people's human rights in ways that are not, that the law can't yet keep up with. So I, that's a, that's an even bigger piece, um, that, uh, yeah, that's an even bigger piece that I think we have yet to wrap our heads around. And the other part uh, that I think is important is for us to talk about some of the things that we're doing. What are you, what are you all working on over there in the policy and advocacy program?
5: Yes, um, thank you so much. In other words, back to you, Amy. <laughs> Thank you, Dazon. um Yeah, so in the policy and advocacy space at Sister Love, we are working with a group of other organizations trying to defund CPCs in Georgia. Um, so we are investigating CPCs and trying to interrupt their funds. As Dayson mentioned earlier, um, CPCs um, in Georgia in particular um, receive funding from the government um, that this funding should be going to... Um, actual healthcare providers, actual healthcare facilities. And so we are trying to try our best to divert those funds from them to actual healthcare clinics that would provide necessary healthcare to people, including um, abortions. Um, So we are trying to, um, we're looking to the 2023 legislative session and trying to get legislators um, to introduce, pass and implement a policy that would repeal the existing funding um, in Georgia. Um, in, in terms of, um, sister love and and following us and the work that we're doing, um, we really need people who are, you know, willing to follow us on our socials and, um, who are willing to like donate to us. And so all proceeds go towards um, advocating for sexual health and reproductive justice. Um, We were up until uh, Monday of this week, um, putting out fires by organizing folks to go to the Capitol to advocate against an anti-abortion bill um, that was introduced uh, in Georgia. And we were instrumental in making sure that that anti-medication abortion bill did not pass. Um, So currently, our department is working on, as I mentioned earlier, um, the defunding CPC's work and looking forward to advocacy opportunities for the upcoming elections in Georgia. Um, And that's, you know, based off of the department that I'm in, but also our research department is working on a project that has to do with access to medication abortion. Um, We have also partnered up with um, Emory Center for Reproductive Health Research in the Southeast to conduct um, mixed method research on medication abortion in Georgia. And so all of the donations or the proceeds would really help us to continue doing this necessary work. Um, And yeah.
6: Yeah. No, I also think that there's some work in front of us to do because we are basically the same folks that we serve are now the folks that they're capturing. And uh, we have some cross purposes, right? And so there are other things that we need to be doing to make sure that we're engaging the people we serve who are seeking us out for STI screenings, for HIV, and then pregnancy. We're not the first place people come to for pregnancy screening, but we are among the first places, especially um, women and their families come to for HIV and STI uh, screening. And so there are a couple of things that I think about in terms of what they're doing, but I also want to think about other strategies going forward. First and foremost, I'm in absolute agreement with Andrea. I think if we're paying taxes The CDC should not be, and nobody else, and I think that we should direct it to HHS to make sure that there are no other agencies, including CMMS or CMS, Medicaid, Medicare programming, anywhere that's providing referrals to any of these uh, facilities. That has to be uh, a number one thing. But I also think we need a much better, broader messaging and information campaign because people just don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. Using some of the signs, what to look out for, how they, the language that they use, the imagery that they use. I love this notification that, you know, they have biblical imagery everywhere. That's, you know, red flag number one. But messaging and giving people sort of what uh, Malia is providing to our audience now in terms of what the T-Campaign, the T-Fund campaign is uh, offering communities to, as fact sheets. So the defund issue, removing from the CDC list, a much more robust information campaign uh, that is viral, if if we can make it so. But I also, because they are preparing for a post row environment, right? Mm -hmm. And they're going to actually get more traffic and more traction in that era. And so I think in this instance, we also need to be planning for very much similarly, but in ways that are much more supportive and loving of the people seeking services, that our protests outside and within their facilities, that the demonstrations need to be right in front of their places, where we're actually helping people, um, not necessarily attacking people as they do. And I'm not against looking forward to the litigation that needs to be coming forward about the dangers of them providing or fake providing STI and HIV services Mm -hmm. without providing treatment and referrals in the state of Georgia, because we are one of the, we, if we, we go neck and neck between, you know, New York and Georgia being number one in terms of Black maternal uh, mortality. But that is also directly connected to when and where people are able to get their prenatal services if they are carrying pregnancies, right? So in addition to the issue around abortion, the stigmas around HIV and how they are exacerbating these issues are also quite dangerous. In the state of Georgia, by law, a provider of services, especially health services to pregnant people, have to do HIV uh, screening in the, at, at least once by the third trimester. So, if and and if that's not happening, then there may be cause in here. And so, I really think that there are ways for us to look at this from a legal standpoint of how they are uh, actually a bigger part of the HIV epidemic as a problem versus a solution. It's, it's unacceptable to believe that they would be sending people out the door with HIV when the first rule of HIV is the minute you find that someone is tested positive, they must be linked to care immediately so that they can get started on their treatment and hopefully sustain viral suppression or reach viral suppression and sustain it. So this, this has huge implications in terms of how they're encroaching in the uh, sexual health space. That I don't think uh, the HIV or the STI community has even begun to wrap its head around. And that speaks back to this whole issue why reproductive justice approach to this is so important, because those intersections cannot continue to be ignored by the different sectors of our public health community.
5: Absolutely, I 100% agree with um, everything that you had to say. In particular, you know, relating to the stigma associated with um, STIs and how they are, you know, further perpetuating that because they are allowing people to um, to get tested and then not linking them to care. But also the fact that they, you know, a lot of these centers tend to preach abstinence only or discourage people from using condoms, or as Andrea and um, Danielle um, later, uh, earlier spoke about, um, talking negatively about um, use of condoms and how it's not going to prevent the spread of STIs. Um, So I think it's doing a really bad disservice to the sexual health um, movement and to sexual health advocacy in general um, that CPCs are allowed to
6: continue perpetuating that. Yeah. And I mean we can open it up for questions because you and I could talk about this stuff forever. So but we can offer it up. What um what I would say is that for people who are um receiving these STI type services, the most important thing to look for. Um, The most important thing to recognize in a really good program is that you're the center of attention, that um, what you can get is confidential information, that you can get it for free, that you will get not only referrals, but that you will actually probably have access to some type of treatment or a provider. Um, If if it could, like what Sister Love does with our program, which makes us unique, is we are feminist-centered, we are people-centered. We uh, want to know your lived experience. We don't talk about what's wrong with your sex life. So we're not going to talk about what risks you have, how many partners you had, whether you know what their status is. We are going to make sure that whatever your sexual and reproductive health desires and aspirations are, that we have the tools and the services that you need to make sure that they are the best and that you have the optimum outcome that you are seeking without having to Inquire about what's wrong with your sexual with your sexual life or with your reproductive decision making. That we um, value people's own stories and their own decisions, and we demonstrate that value by listening to them and by responding to them based on their stories. Thank you. So, I don't know Lisa or Garnett if y'all have questions or Amy if you have um, any any more comments.
1: We have all kinds of questions um, in the Q&A, so there's no way we'll get to all of them, but um, definitely want to make sure that we uh, potentially address a couple of them now. So we got a question uh, from one of our attendees saying that I see some CPCs state that they comply with HIPAA and are confidential sources, yet they share ultrasounds and client stories on social media and don't seem to have permission. How is this legal and how do we report it?
6: So that's a really good question. I would think first and foremost, from a HIPAA standpoint, it has to be the, the, so because they're also not uh, licensed, I don't think they have to have CLIA waivers. I don't think they have to do any of that kind of stuff um, because they claim that, that They will pretend to be one thing, but when it comes to the authorities, they totally and immediately claim that they're none of those things, right? And so they're not beholden. So I would think that we have to start in terms of uh, querying the the legal practice of violating HIPAA is that the person who has been violated with a HIPAA uh, situation actually has to be the, the first person to initiate any kind of complaint. So that's the first thing is we have to educate people to make sure that if you haven't signed a HIPAA consent form, but they're taking your information, you're already giving that, you're putting yourself at risk for that. And if they provide you with a HIPAA, uh, any kind of consent form, and then they're still sharing your information or your data or your details, then you then you should have grounds to take action uh, on, with them legally. Now, from a collective standpoint, I think that it's a matter of making sure we're getting in as much data, as many stories and experiences as possible so that we can actually take that as a I'm not going to say class action, but to take that as as an overall class effect, that there are many people whose uh, confidentiality and medical data has been breached and that uh, it's enough people that you don't have to wait for individuals to file suit. So that would be two things that I would think about. Encourage people to make sure that their HIPAA protections are in place and that they pursue them when they're not. And that we collected much as much information as possible on how many people know that they've been violated so that we could at some point have legal grounds to go after all of it. Yeah.
1: And another question we got here um, from an attendee anonymously is how can youth engage in this movement?
6: Amy, I'm gonna throw that one to you, cause you to you. But also, I want to apologize for answering the legal question when I got my lawyer sitting here. I'm so sorry for doing that. I just no, you I, did an amazing job. So I just we've yeah. been, you know, as the person who has to make sure we implement HIPAA sister law, <laughs> I had a feeling, I you know, I had a sense about that. But what about the young people? Um, Yes. Um, So the young
5: people can join us on our social media, following us. Um, They can reach out to me personally. Um, I'll make sure that my email is provided. Um, But essentially, they can just join us when we have organizing days when we go to the Capitol um, in order to talk to legislators about these issues. Going forward with the defund CPC's work, we are going to need as many hands on deck as possible. Um, so we definitely want to appeal to the youth and have a youth presence um, because this affects them as well.
6: I want to offer another one. With our Healthy Love Youth Advocates Network, uh, periodically, yeah. periodically what we would do is actually do some secret shopper stuff. So because they're all young people, they're in high school, they're in college. And so they're all college-aged folks or high school-aged and they take one person's pregnant urine and they go into these places and they, um, they present themselves as clients and they're collecting data while they're doing that. They're marking what's been said, and uh, sub, we've had a couple of people actually record. I know that's not legal in the state of Georgia. We didn't use any of that data, but they recorded it for themselves to show proof that they have been there. But I think that that is um, an amazing and important subversive strategy. Uh, if we want to see how it actually happens, we need people who are conscious like Malia and who are pregnant, and who can go, or who have pregnant pee, and can go in and um, collect the information that we need to use uh, for opposition research?
5: Yeah, I just want to add um, for sure. Like, we definitely uh, we have our Healthy Love Youth Advocates program at Sister Love. Um, so, if you are interested in that, please check out our website. Um, we need youth um, to be interested and to participate.
1: So, I'm going to ask one last question, and then we'll. Uh move into closing, but I think this one really gets to the heart of why we're all here. And that question is, what do you think is the end goal for the anti-abortion movement? What are they trying to achieve?
6: You know, I'm not sure they know. (laughs) I'm not sure because first and foremost, I could give you what we know in terms of what the opposition presents to us. And I don't think we can rest anymore with the nebulous notion that it's about controlling people's bodies, um, and futures. I think there's a, there are some underlying issues that are very geopolitical that we have to address. I think, and for example, um, Most of the people who are in this movement, most of the people who lead this fight, most of the people who are pushing this legislation are old, crusty white men who will not ever have an opportunity to be pregnant or be a parent, a single parent who had to push something out of their bodies. And so, um, and their population is dwindling every year. And in about 20 years, they will no longer be the majority in this country. And so, the advent of contraception, the advent of birth control, the advent of abortion that has allowed women to enter the workplace, that has allowed women more options, more power, more economic independence, is a threat to the patriarchy. It is a threat to white supremacy. And so, by, in one instance, making sure that BIPOC people stay in their places with having economic challenges with having communities that are continuing to be less resourced, with um, making sure that they suppress our vote, um, that all of these things are all wrapped up in the issue of power and privilege. And the fact that white women are um, having fewer children, just like everybody else, and are moving and succeeding in the workplace and are achieving things that were shut out for them prior to the advent of contraception and abortion, are also a threat to these men and these people. And so that I think is one of the core reasons. The, the other one is people actually believe in it. People actually believe that abortion in one way or another is murder because of their own faith, because of their own cultural Um, backgrounds or their own religions or their own influences by their families and their heritage. I don't think they have any other means other than that, that somebody told them it was wrong and they believe it too. They don't have an end goal other than to stop people from doing something that they think is wrong. The problem for me in that is that that is extremely myopic and narcissistic because just because you believe something doesn't mean everybody has to believe the way you do. And what white supremacy tells them is that we have the right to tell you what to do and why you don't have to be white to be complicit with white supremacy. All you have to do is be complicit with the system and the structure. And that's what we have in the anti-abortion faction.
1: Thank you so much. Um, This, this was so moving and I hope that everyone who's on with us really uh, took a lot away from that. And we will answer more of the questions post-event. So um, the conversation is not ending. Uh, But if we could, let's bring on all of the rest of our speakers, bring everyone back on video. Um, And really, you know, Garnet and I just want to say thank you, everyone, for being here, Uh, for those in attendance. Please do check out all of these organizations and, um, you know, on social media, on their websites, sign up for these different programs. And you will be getting a post-event email. Uh, It'll either be tonight or tomorrow uh, with more information, more follow-ups. And when you leave the webinar tonight, there will be a very brief survey if you could fill that out. Um, And so with that, uh, does anyone have anything else they wanna say in closing?
0: I just want to say thank you so much, so, so much to all the panelists for giving us your time here tonight. We have been so lucky to have all of you with us.
6: I I want to say for anybody who does all the social media stuff, all the resources, just blast them. The, The making sure that everybody knows about the map website, that everybody knows where the fact sheets are, that everybody knows that this... This isn't just a problem for certain people who might be pregnant. This is a problem for everybody because somebody you know has needed a service, somebody you know may have ended up in one of these centers, and somebody you know's name might end up in somebody's database. So that that all is really really important for you to make sure that people are learning and knowing more about the dangers of these places because they're going to become more prominent, they're going to become more prevalent. And they're actually going to grow in numbers um, in a post-Row World.
1: All right. Well, with that, um, keep an eye out for post-event communications. Thank you to all of our panelists. Amazing. What an amazing evening. Um, Hopefully, uh, there will be many more discussions like this, raising awareness of CPCs. And um, I hope everyone has a good night.
0: Thank you for coming, everyone. Access is produced by me, Garnet Henderson. Our theme music is by Lily Sloan, and our logo is by Kate Ryan. Thanks again to Lisa of Reproductive Transparency Now for co hosting this event with me, and thanks to our panelists from Sister Love, We Testify, and CPC Map. Don't forget that Access is an independent production. You can support the show by donating or by buying merch. Both of those links are in the show notes. I am always open to hearing your story about abortion. If you want to share it, you can find me at accesspodcast at protonmail.com. That's in the show notes, too. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or find us at a podcast about abortion.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at accesspod, and we'll see you next time.